And so I had the pleasure of choosing his talk and the, the title for his talk. And that was Muffins, Teddy Bears, and Serenity. And help me welcome Dick, who will explain what that means. Good morning, my name is Dick, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm scared to death. But all I have to tell is my own story, and uh, and I guess I'm up here for me, so that uh, one more time I can find out where I am and, and what's going on in, in my life, and maybe there's something that's gone on in my life that'll, that'll mean something uh, to you. Coming to uh, to San Diego is, is sort of coming back to the the places of uh, of my childhood. Uh, I was born over those mountains in El Centro in the middle of the summer, and that may have been the beginning of my problems. I may have been baked in the head a little bit, and uh, and I was a scrawny little thing, and. Uh, before I was a couple of weeks old, they, they tell me that they took me out of the valley, the Imperial Valley, because of, and I have no idea what, for respiratory problems or something like that. And I grew up as a skinny little kid whose ribs showed all the time, and I was the smallest kid in the classroom. And uh, I was the last one picked to play the games. You know, I was always hoping that I could fall down and break something before they got to the end so I wouldn't be the last one chosen. I was never quite as good, quite as big, never, things just never were quite good enough for me. But I had parents who loved me. I had a sister and, and, and my mother and father and we were a kind of a neat little family I thought growing up. My mother happened to be a paranoid schizophrenic, but I didn't realize that as a kid. And my father was the most tolerant man in the world who loved this woman and spent his life trying to take care of her. He didn't want any harm ever to, to come to her, and, and he did all he could to take care of her for a long, long time. And. Uh, you know, I, I, in school, I, I, I learned I learned a way to get along so that, that things were okay, and that was always to be second best. If you're second best, everybody doesn't expect the most out of you, and, and you're better than, than most of the other people, so you get a pat on the back. And you can sort of shrink into the woodwork that way and, 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 you know, and be anonymous. The whole idea of anonymity has, you know, has been a great place to be in my life. And, and I, I learned from those parents that I was supposed to do this and I was supposed to do that, and these were the things in the life, in your life that you needed to do. And as I grew up, as a, you know, I, someplace along, in, in, in you know, five or six years old, we had a friendly little uh, family doctor who, who who didn't want to hurt kids or anything, and, and when the you know, when we got our, our shots, shots for diphtheria, then they were, they were just then, he used to put us on his lap and give us the shots and he almost cried. I thought he was the most wonderful guy in the world. And that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a family doctor. 
And so I, you know, I didn't have a lot of decisions to make. My decisions were made early in my life, and uh, and so it was uh, it was just an ordinary life growing up, being second best. And I was thinking, being here in San Diego, I need to tell you about something that happened. You know, it was about 46 years ago, I think it was. There was there was a a young guy who was a little bit taller than I am, weighed considerably less than I do. That that one March day, got off the train not very far from here, and he was in an army uniform that didn't fit him very well. And if some of you may remember that the first uniforms you got during the Second World War didn't really match very well. They were sort of worn strange, different ways. And this uniform was kind of dirty and disheveled. And he got off and he met his parents. He had just finished his basic training up in uh, Camp Roberts. And he was sort of squinting at the light and, and you know, he just looked miserable. But it was kind of a celebration. He was, he was coming home. So his folks took him to a, a restaurant that wasn't very far from here. It was called the Cotton Patch. And, and, uh, his uncle, young uncle that was in, in the Navy was with them and they sat there. And finally, you know, his dad said, what's the matter? What's the matter with you? And I, he said he had a terrible headache. And, and why did he have that headache? And he went on to explain that the night before, after the military guga and stuff had gone on, they'd had this party. And in this party, they had lots of beer. And he drank lots of beer. He drank about a case and a half of beer that night. And the next day, and, and in that night, he ended up in mud puddles. He ended up blacking out, not knowing what was happening. And the next day, he had to get on a train, and he had to put on his dirty uniform because the clean one was now full of mud. And he told his parents about this. And his father laughed and thought that was funny. Here was a kid, you know, he'd never had anything to drink before, really, and, and this is what happened, and he'd learned his lessons. And his mother was very upset about this, and that he thought that, uh, and she thought that this was a terrible thing for the pride of her life to do. And, and uh, his uncle was amazed that he was able to tell his parents something like this. And that was the first time I ever got drunk. And you'd think I'd learn, you know. It really, you know, I, I can feel that headache today. It's probably the worst I ever had. And it didn't stop anything. The next chance I got, I was drunk. I went off to that war and the, the end of it and, and, and I hated the army and I found out how you could manipulate, how you could get into positions where you wanted to be and I did that and I drank. And night after night I drank. And I finally got to be, you know, a battalion sergeant major. Again, that's number two. See all these other people around. And yet you've got, you got to manipulate that way. And I got a place all of my own and it had loose floorboards so I could put my supplies underneath. And I, I was up there alone at night and I could drink myself into oblivion. And I didn't have to march and I didn't have to shoot guns. 
in basic training. I almost didn't get through because I'm left-handed and I never fired a rifle before. And nobody told me I was doing it wrong and I had a black and blue face all the time from trying to fire this silly thing. And everybody thought it was wonderful, you know. But uh, in the obstacle courses, I was the last one over. And so I found out how to drink and when I drank, I was good as everybody else. I was as tall as everybody else. I was smart as everybody else. And those two years were probably the heaviest drinking of my life. I came home and decided I didn't want to live that way. And I went back to school. I went to school here in San Diego. I went up to Berkeley. And finally, I went to medical school. And I didn't do a lot of drinking in those years because I didn't have the money to do it. And I had a goal and I had a place I wanted to go. I wanted to have a life that was worthwhile and I wanted to have a life where I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to have people telling me what to do all the time. And, and so I, I just, you know, I did my thing and, and uh, until I got to medical school. And it was wonderful, you know, Saturday night was the night to have a party. I don't think in the four years in medical school I ever knew how one of them ended. They, I know how to begin. I don't think I ever had the same date twice because if I took a date, somebody else took them home. And I thought that was wonderful. You know, we had we had themes. You know, it depended on what we what what we were going to drink this week was according to what kind of party we were going to have. And uh, when I finished that, I went to. Uh, I went into my internship, and internships are, I think it's been stated here several times, are sort of blessings. You you don't have a chance to drink much. You're too damn tired. And, uh, you know, I probably had three bottles of beer in a year, so I didn't have a problem. So I went into a residency, and when I got through at night, I stopped and bought my supply. And I courted a lady by, uh, by telephone, and... Uh, and by meeting her on weekends, and I drank. Now, anybody that's crazy enough to marry somebody that the only time they see him is, is, is uh, when they're sitting there drinking uh, has got a problem in and of themselves. And uh, I'm sorry to say that my, my dear wife uh, comes from an alcoholic family, and she didn't see anything wrong with all of this. And we got married, set up practice, had three kids. I did the things you're supposed to do within the community. I belonged to this and that. I worked in the hospital staff. I became chief of staff. I worked at building a new hospital. At one point they asked me to be medical director. And I did that and discovered it wasn't what I wanted to do. And eventually I've ended up in a, in a prepaid medical group where I do half practice and probably, well, I always tease the people, I say do half practice, half uh, half administration and half traveling, which comes to more than one, but then well, that's sort of my alcoholic personality. And what I did was drink. Someone asked me yesterday, when was the, you know, when was the, when was the worst part of my drinking? When did it really take hold? And I would, I would submit to you that, that uh, I really started drinking when I was 18 years old, when I got off, that day before I got off that train. Whenever it was available, whenever I could, and whenever I started, I didn't know how to stop. 
And I have to remember to tell you that in that time and in the drinking and in the sneaking around and in all the things I did, that there were violent times. That I ended up beaten up on the beach. That I ended up in the hospital. That I ended up in, you know, driving and waking up in strange places that I didn't know where I was. I don't know how many times in my lifetime a friendly policeman stopped me to, 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 because I was weaving from side to side. And remember in the old days the licenses used to say MD after them. And when we saw that they said, oh we don't arrest doctors. You know, you stay there for a while. Or you do this. And they were great enablers and I went on. Well it wasn't very serious. And finally one day I ended up in jail. A nice guy like me. You know, ended up in jail with handcuffs behind and stuff. And my son had to come and get me and take me home. And it would never happen again. I would never see the inside of one of those places again. Because after all, I was a good person who did good things. And I went to one of those little schools that said, within a year, you know, 50 or 60% of you will be back. And by God, I wasn't back in a, in, in a year. It took 15 months. <laughs> and the last day I can remember, I went to visit one of our other offices to do something. It was about noon when I got through. And I drove to a bar. And I drank just one or two. Or three or four. And then I went off and did something else and I I drank one or two or three or four. And I went downtown Los Angeles for for a meeting at the Medical Association. And I was early, so there's a bar not far from there, so I quit drinking beer and started drinking martinis. And I had a couple or three. And then I went to the medical association and it has a bar. And so I had to have one or two or three. And I finished the meeting and the meeting was early. Now these meetings used to go on for long hours, but what had happened was we streamlined our approach to what we did and they got through early. So I got to go to a bar earlier that way. So on the way home I stopped again and I finally went, and it got to be midnight. And that was my witching hour. I turned into a pumpkin. And I, I uh, stood up and started to walk out and, and the bartender looked at me and he said, Hey doc, are you alright? And I said, sure. And the next thing I remember was about three hours later, I was sitting in my car, bolt upright, the insides were fogged, the doors were locked. And I don't know how I got there, I don't know, you know, I just was there just sitting right behind the wheel with my hands on the wheel, just sort of frozen. Well, it had been three hours, so I must be sober. So I started home, and the highway patrol didn't think so. And that night when I called home, there was no answer. There was no one to come, and I called a bail bondsman who came and got me out just as the sun was coming up and said, ordinarily I'll take you home, but uh, but I got other things to do today, so I'm going to dump you on a street corner and you can call someone from there. And uh, it was a coffee shop and I went in, it was hot and 
I was sick and you know it, it, I couldn't stand that so I went out on the street and waited for my wife to come pick me up and uh, I'm standing there and this great big guy comes jogging down the street every time I think about him he gets bigger and he kept coming at me so as, as he came I zigged to get out of his way and so did he and he knocked me flat on my ass and I laid there and I thought you deserve this this is what what you deserve is just to be knocked down one more time and that wife picked me up my wife who really had nothing to do with me for a lot of years and all the way home she kept saying well now you're going to go to jail you're going to go to jail aren't you you're going to go to jail <laughs> So I did what any good alcoholic would do. I went home and I got went in bed and I pulled the covers up over the top of me and I stayed there for three days. And in all the years that had gone before, now this is 38 years after that 18-year-old kid got off the, the train. I had never missed work. I, I, I have to. I have to qualify that a little bit. I used to get the flu at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, I'd make it to work somehow, some way, and I'd be there just long enough to be deathly ill, and, and then it was a legitimate reason to go home. But this time I didn't. I just pulled up and I started praying to that God that had to be there someplace, help me. Somehow over the next few days I found an attorney and I did those things and I can still, it was a lady attorney and I'll never, she kept saying, well, you know, there but for the grace of God, you know, we all could get picked up for this and so forth. And then she'd tell me about how she could only drink half a glass of wine without falling asleep. And I, through the next couple of weeks, I just, life just got, I don't know what happened. I have no idea. I cannot tell you whether I drank. I can't tell you what I achieved. I can't tell you what I, what I got done. People tell me they didn't know anything was wrong. But on a Thursday morning in 1982, I stood in the hallway outside my office door and I stopped in my tracks. And I knew at that moment I either had to die or find a way to live. I got to the phone and I called a hospital. I've said a lot of times in my sobriety, I called a hospital because I was a doctor and that's what doctors do. I did it because I was afraid to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd driven in that car thinking, those people don't have to drink, there must be something, why can't you go to them? But I couldn't do that. So I called a hospital. And a little lady answered that phone. And she's sort of my angel. Because she said, I told her what my problem was, and she says, I think I can help you. I think we can help you. And I said, fine, when should I come talk to you about it? And she said, you better come now. 
and I gave her every excuse in the book why I couldn't come now. And she said to me, she said, there may not be room later. And I said, give me five minutes. And in five minutes, I called my wife, my son, my priest, and the, the, the medical director of the group that I worked for. His first comment was, well, we don't know if we'll pay for this or not. <laughs> and I said, I don't give a damn, it's my life. They paid for it. <laughs> uh, I went to that hospital. And I took with me all the things I was going to need for the time I was in there. I took some journals to read. I took my Bible. I uh, took some novel. And, you know, I, I took these things. And those damn people took them away from me. <laughs> and they handed me a big book, a 24-hour book, a 12 and 12, and said, these are the things that you need. Uh, and while I was there, it was a learning process. After I was there a couple of days, the guy who was supposed to be attending me at that point had been gone for the weekend, and he came in, and he put his arms around me, and he said, if you'll stay here and you'll do it our way, you'll be a better doctor. Feelings are wonderful things, and you know, I didn't know I could get this emotional about all this in front of all you strange people. <laughs> Isn't it funny? We've all got the same disease, and, and remembering where I came from, these tears are not those tears I shed to begin with. They're tears of joy, tears of remembrance that there was a way to come, and that I'm here today and I'm sober. Leland came into my life, and I, I'm, you know, I'm extremely grateful that he got sober the year before, because if he hadn't, he wouldn't have been there. And he was sitting in my room, puffing on his pipe, you know, sitting there and said, well, you know, I'm Leland, and here's my story, and I love you. And, you know, I was so comfortable. I think it was about that. It was in a day or two after that, I woke up one morning and the sun started, you know, the sun was bright, the birds were singing, the world was a glorious place to be in. I knew my life could be alright, I knew I could be alright. And nobody could stop me, I mean, you know, you've seen that, that television thing where the, the guy goes around on a plastic disc and just is able to screw it all over the place, that was me. My life was wonderful, I knew it was going to be okay. The problems were all there. Everything was still there. But I had suddenly no longer had to be number two. It was me and God and AA. I, life was going to be okay. I think I drove one poor man out of the groups because he came in and said, Oh, Dick, how come you're so happy? And I told him, it scared him to death. <laughs> When I got out of that, I, you know, I had to go to AA meetings. So I agreed to go to three a week, 
within a couple of weeks I was going to seven. I was going to seven AA meetings a week. I was going to the to the hospital three nights a week. I was uh, working full time and uh, loved every minute of it. Somebody said you're going to get tired. And, you know, you couldn't tell me anything at that point. But I went into an AA meeting and I was scared. And I sat back in the corner and I snuck out the first day. And it was an 8 o'clock meeting in the morning. The next day I went back again. And this great big tall guy stood between me and the door that day. And he said, <laughs> he said my name is David and here's my card. And if you need me, call me. I never called him. But, uh, you know, I carry his card today. Because I know David is still there if I need him. And, and I came in and every morning I came and we sat around this table and we sat there and finally one day the guy sits over on the other side and he draws his seating chart where everybody had automatically come in and sit down every morning and he passed it around the table and everybody was giggling at it and I looked down and my name was on it. I was there. I was a member of AA. I belonged. And shortly after that, they started early morning meetings, 6.45 meetings, Dr. Paul's kind of meetings, and uh, they had been my life blood. And that's where the muffins come from. <laughs> they started them, uh, and they started one on Wednesday, and and, uh, and after a couple of Wednesdays, we, we uh, uh, I made some remark about I wish they were there every day, and, and somebody slipped me a note and said, why don't we start one on, on Monday, and I said, gee, that'd be great, and I thought that, uh, you know, I had all the three months of sobriety, and I, there were, I thought, you know, the two of us would work at it, and, you know, she came to the first meeting and never came back again, and uh, so for the next year and more, I took, uh, I took care of this, this was my, my obligation, I was secretary of that meeting, and every Sunday afternoon I baked muffins, and I took muffins to that meeting, and, and there are some people that say they haven't had a decent breakfast since. <laughs> And uh, little do they know what I put in them. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I kept on going to these because this is the way I start my day. You know, it gets me closer to it gets me closer to that God and to the spiritual kind of thing that I need to do. It comes in sort of funny ways, I guess. I think one of the things that I found out here at this meeting, I finally figured it out. I have never really been comfortable in doctors' meetings. And that goes back a long way. It finally came to me. I don't deserve to be in doctors' meetings because I don't deserve to be a doctor. That's what my head has told me. I only snuck in. I'm not good enough to be in a companion or a colleague of people who who, uh, who practice medicine. My God, I'm only a family practitioner. I didn't get to be a neurosurgeon or a cardiovascular surgeon. Remember, all I ever wanted to be was a family physician. And I think I'm a good one. I have patients who love me. Thank God for them. They've fed me for nearly 30 years. They kept me alive. They gave me their love when I couldn't give myself any. Today I take care of them better. 
I don't have to judge them. When they don't do what I tell them to, I can still love them. You've taught me that. So today I'm glad I'm in a, in a company of doctors. You know, I have my place here too. Maybe this meeting has been my seating chart for being with doctors and being part of, part of that community too. When I left that hospital, one of the things that happened was we gave little speeches. And I gave a little speech about how I felt when I went in and how I came out. And when I walked out, my son was standing there and he's about six foot, six foot two. And, and he, he had taken me to the hospital and he bent down and he put his arms around me. And it was like he was this big. And he cried. See, I have three of the most wonderful kids in the world. And they had worked and slaved and connived and done everything they could to get their father sober. They loved me when I couldn't love myself. And you know, this year, in the, in the early part of April, I took a birthday cake at, at one of our meetings and there were three kids there. Damn, I'm blubbery. And they gave me my cake. And there were four Sullivans blubbering that night. And they were proud of me. And the next week I got to walk down the aisle with my daughter to her wedding. And I got to read lessons about love. Something I've learned something about. Because this program, this program I've been taught is about love. That's what spirituality is, 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 is learning how to love. And I've had to learn as I go along that the only way I can love is, is I can't love you until I learn to love myself. And that there's, there's, I don't know, some of you know that there's, there's a, a Scotchman that that's, lives up in our area, or did, he went to Scotland and he's got a patch over one eye. And one morning he brought me a little book, it's called The Greatest Thing in the World. And it's all about love. It's all about Paul's letter to the Corinthians telling you about love. And it makes it easier as I learn each day, as I walk this this golden path that we're on. Gee, what a neat place to be. And when you can do that, a lot of things happen. Uh, after my daughter got married, a couple of weeks later, I went I went to, up to San Francisco. The, her uh, in-laws were giving her a reception, and I stayed in the city and, and uh, went out to where the reception was. And that night, I came back, and I went to an AA meeting, and I wandered around the, the city... Uh, just looking at things for a while, and I uh, came back to this little hotel I was staying in, and uh, uh, I wanted a, I wanted a soft drink, and there wasn't there was no coffee shop, so I went into the bar, and I sat down next to this guy sitting on a, on a stool next to me, and, and uh, 
had a soda water or something, and I started talking to him. And uh, we talked for a while, and then we talked for a while, and then we left and we went and talked for a while. And pretty soon he said to me, I've come, I came to San Francisco tonight to kill myself. He said, my life is falling all apart. And, and he told me all the troubles and the things that he had and how he tried to change his life and how things didn't work. And I, you know, you know, I laughed at him. It's not a very nice thing to do when somebody tells you they're going to kill him. But I laughed at him and I said, you'll really fix things, won't you? And he laughed a little bit back at me and we talked some more that night. And a couple of weeks later he called me and said, could he come down and, and visit for the weekend? And I said, sure. And he came down. You know, came Saturday night and, and what do I do? I go to a meeting. So I said, would you like to go to an AA meeting? And he said, sure. So we went to an AA meeting and we listened to, to somebody talk about a lot of prisons and killing and all sorts of things that really, you know, were, were sort of different from the life that, that he and I had led. And uh, the next, uh, the people were talking about the meeting on the beach the next morning and he said, can we go to that? And I said, sure. So we went to the meeting on the beach. And uh, it's kind of a neat thing to go to with everybody stretched out on the sand and the sun was shining and here were all these drunks sharing to them with themselves and when the meeting is over they get together and form this one great big circle and, and say the Lord's Prayer together. And uh, the next day I put him on a plane and the day after that he called me and he said I went to an AA meeting. He said you need to know that I'm an alcoholic. He now has, I think it's about 65 days on the program. Now, you know, if nothing else ever showed anything to me, because I, I didn't say, are you an alcoholic? And he didn't drink alcoholically. I'll admit, when he got off the plane, he said, well, I just had a glass of wine or so, and I thought they'd started making uh, wine a lot more odiferous than it used to be. But he wasn't staggering, and he, he wasn't slurred in speech, and, and, and you know, it just because I could have some love for him as one human being to another. And because in that there was at least some kind of attraction, then he was able to get something that gave that spark within him to begin to find a program that he could live with. i got to tell you about teddy bears. Uh, I've got a tie on that says HYT and it says hug your teddy and and this is uh, super bear and he came along to help me this morning because I was so damn scared and upstairs on my bed there is a teddy bear and that's that's beer bear he's the first one I got first uh, Christmas I was sober my daughter said what do you want for uh, what do you want for Christmas and I said out of a clear blue sky, I want a teddy bear because I've never had one. And uh, so she got this, he's a little round and he's got short arms and short legs and you know, when I want to look at myself, I can look at him and it's like looking in the mirror. <laughs> and uh, sometimes he looks pretty scruffy too. Uh, and then somebody said, well, everybody has to collect something. So uh, 
so that's what I started collecting. And if you come into my apartment these days and you try to sit down on the couch, you'll get covered with teddy bears. And some of them sing in German, and uh, some of them sing as an Irish tenor, and uh, some of them don't do anything but just sit there. And uh, they're kind of a symbol to me. They're a symbol of unconditional love. They're there. They're there to cuddle. They're there to... Uh, they never fight back. They never ask for anything. They're just there. They just give love. And uh, and they're fun. I gave a pitch one night. Uh, I was asked to do it, and, and I didn't realize that a number of my friends were coming. And here they were. They were all sitting in the front row, and they all had stuffed uh, animals sitting there with them. <laughs> I love this program. I love AA. I love my God. I, I did not belong to a a punitive religion. I did not belong. You know, I was. I, I was, I'm. I'm an Episcopalian, and, and I, I grew up around here. Uh, you know, going to all the different churches because I like to see the variety. And if you if you're Episcopalian, you can find any variety you want within it. And, and, uh, and I was an altar boy, and you know, I get up early in the morning, and and I do all those those things. And 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 it was. Uh, and I always had people who were kind and loving to me. Nobody ever threatened to kick me out or, or tell me what things I did wrong. And, and all through my drinking, I maintained that tie. But it wasn't until I got sober that I could understand what all that talk, what all those things were about. That we have a God who started out loving us, and he never threw us away. He just gave us choices. And I know how to take the wrong choices. I did it for a long, long time. And today, you know, today when I go to church, today when I go, uh, when I get down on my knees, I know he's listening. But most important, all the external trappings, most important, the thing that I've found is that he's here, that he's inside of me. That there's a spark of that higher power that God was in me. I heard someone say the other not long ago that that he was Jewish and he had trouble with a an anthropomorphic God. And you know that helped me a lot because you know I can't imagine a little man running around inside of me, but I can imagine a spirit that is there. I have to imagine. I can feel it. I can really feel it all the time. So, you know, I don't know about serenity. You know, I, I hope someday, there are some moments of time when life is wonderful. You know, I always think of that, what Joel Gray, when he sings at the beginning of, of, of uh, Cabaret, when he says everything is wonderful, you know, the orchestra is wonderful, it's beautiful. But there's always that world that's coming to catastrophe around, but I don't have to live in that. I can live with my God in a world where the sun shines all the time, or at least most of it. And when the clouds come over, I know the sun's still over the top of it. 
And that's just sort of where I am today. I, I'd like you to do something for me, because I sort of miss it, and I didn't see a lot of it happening around here. And as we finish, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you all to sort of stand up and, and face whoever's next to you, put your toes toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and put your arms around the other one and give each, each other a hug. Give each other a hug and give each other that love. And when you get through with whoever's next to you, turn around and do it to the other one. Give at least three hugs this morning. <laughs> you know, the room is filled with love now and there'll be that much more. We have to reach out to each other and that's one way to do it. Okay, everybody up. <laughs> that's cold. <laughs>